If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right, we circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for Classic Conversations with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Marge, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to Conversations Classicas. Uh, somebody hit Google Translate and read that in Spanish. All right, I'm going to stick to that. Welcome, everybody, to Classic Conversations. As always, I am your host, Jeff Jawaskin. Great to have you back for another classic episode. We got a great one for you today. Oh, yes, we do. Emmy Award winner Jay Kogan is here. That's right, everybody. Jay Kogan, producer, writer, actor, director, Emmy Award winner. He won that award for Frasier. We talk about that. We talk about working on the Tracy Ullman show. We talk about the Groundlings. We talk about All the cool stuff he did as one of the very first people with The Simpsons, helping build that world. Tons of great Simpsons stories. Also, tons of great stories about his collaborations with Mike Myers. And we get a heads up on Jay's upcoming podcast, which sounds like it's going to be amazing. So a little heads up on that. Get your pens and papers ready to jot that down. All right. My conversation with Jay Kogan is coming up. In just a few minutes. If you haven't, and why wouldn't you have? I hope you didn't miss my interview with Eric Allen Kramer, episode 138. Oh my God, that's a great episode. You're going to love it. If you're a Good Luck Charlie fan, Bob Duncan, Eric was in True Romance. If you're like a, a Marvel fan, Eric Allen Kramer was the first mighty Thor in The Incredible Hulk Returns with Lou Ferrigno as the Hulk way back when, way before Chris Hemsworth grabbed that hammer. Boom. Eric Allen Kramer, we talk about that and so much more. That's a really fun episode. Check that out. We had a bonus episode last week as well with excerpts from our live show we do every Wednesday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time, Crossing the Streams. The bonus episodes pull segments from the 75-plus shows that are waiting for you on YouTube, on our YouTube channel. You know Crossing the Streams. That's our live show we do that's chock full of TV binge-watching suggestions. Do not miss it. Two of my co-stars on Crossing the Streams, Sal D'Amelio and Bob Phillips, I actually this past week had the honor of doing a live comedy show with them at Janetti's Hole in the Wall in Michigan. That was super fun. Photos on my personal Instagram, if you follow me there, check that out. It was a lot of fun actually being in the same room with Sal and Bob. It'd been a long time since we weren't just virtual. So check that out. Check out the bonus episodes. Check us out on YouTube. You won't regret it. I do want to thank everyone in advance for their support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at Classic Conversations. And that's how we keep the lights on. I just want to throw out a quick reminder. There's two apps that you need to have with you. One, the hashtag Roundup app. Why? Because I read hashtags from the Hashtag Roundup community, which the app pushes out to your phone. So if you want to be read on the show, play along with those hashtags. It's a super fun way 
to really enjoy Twitter. So that's one. And then two, people are always asking, Jeff, how can I help you support your podcast, Classic Conversations? And I always say, well, if you have a lot of money, just send it my way. But let's just say for a second, you don't have a lot of money to send my way. There's an alternative. One, you can just follow me on all the podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Download the episodes every week. That's super helpful. Awesome. Love you for that. There's also this new app I found called Pick Cherries. You can download this app. You can search out classic conversations on it. It lets you pick like a snippet of time of the app. Let's say like, uh, I don't know, 30, 60 seconds. I don't know the exact amount of time, but it lets you then save that and then share it to your Twitter or social media or email to someone, put it on Facebook, all that kind of good stuff. So you can share the pick cherry so they can get a little snippet of your favorite part of my podcast episode that resonated with you. You share that. They can click on that, listen to your snippet and then go to the full episode. It's boom. It's amazing. Picked cherry so check that out and share some of my podcast episodes use hashtag jeff dewaskin show when you do that so i see it tag us at jeff dewaskin show on twitter let's do it boom all right i think it's time to get to my interview with jay kogan i can hear you guys share it already all right here i am jay kogan is hilarious the whole conversation we just had a super fun time talking we talk a lot about jay's family He's got a super famous dad, Arnie Kogan, his wife's super famous, Brown Mandel. She's an accomplished writer as well. And Brown and Jay have an amazing son, Charlie Kogan, who is a singer-songwriter. I am in love with his album on Spotify. We talk about that as well. I Cafel and Cafel. And all right, enough buildup. Here's my conversation with Jay Kogan. All right, I am excited to introduce you to my next guest, executive producer, writer, actor, director. Credits include The Tracy Ullman Show, Simpsons, Malcolm in the Middle, Frasier, and a million more. Welcome to the show, Emmy Award winner, Jay Kogan. Welcome to the show, Jay. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Oh, my God, that applause was marvelous. Let's you guys, uh, sit down, everyone. We do got to get going. We you guys don't have to do that. <laughs> so I'm just like you. I'm just like you. Just like me and everyone else. Just like all of us. Thank you. Put your pants on one leg at a time. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I don't because I'm a chain gymnast and I actually t- take them uh, both at the same time. I jump into my pants. But other than that, I'm a very normal person. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to see that in a separate uh, video. Very cool. All right, so a lot of things. You come from a, a very entertainment family. Your your father was a famous writer, Emmy Award winner as well. You then he still he remains still a famous is, writer. Still is, and he still remains a famous writer. You went on to make your own famous family with your wife and your sure. Son. We're kind of like the Von Trapps of Encino, <laughs> like those are like a, a southern, it's like the San Fernando Valley Von Trapps. Right. Well, your wife wrote two of. Uh, we're friends, fanatics, and okay. She, and so uh, your wife Brown Mandel, she wrote the one with Barry and Mindy's wedding, and the one with the mm-hmm. chicken pox. That's right. Two amazing episodes. Two amazing. She's episodes. a very in- incredibly talented writer. I am not. I am maybe the second or third best writer in my household. Your son Charlie is incredible. But you couldn't get the other two, so that's why I'm talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, if you had a better booker. 
right. you'd get the other ones who are ve better writers. Right. Your son, your son's uh, manager just kept ignoring my calls and, and Brown Mandel yeah. just kept going to voicemail. How'd you meet your wife? Were you guys both writers and you kind of just... I met my wife at my buddy's birthday party. My buddy, Rob Cohen, who is a writer, uh, was dating her. And it was a birthday party. It was supposed to be me and my girlfriend and Rob and his girlfriend, which is Brown Mandel. And my girlfriend couldn't show, didn't make it. And so it was just the birthday party. It was really just me, Rob, and her. And so that's where I first got to know her. Two years later... I'm single, she's single, and we meet again because we work at Universal Studios across from each other in different shows we're doing. And we start, uh, you know, saying hi and uh, passing each other in hallways and stuff. And then one thing led to another, and now we're uh, married for almost 25 years. Your son, Charlie, an amazing songwriter. Yeah, and a good writer-writer. Like, he writes plays and stuff. He's really funny. But his music is unbelievable. Now, I... I say that as a proud father, but I actually, I'm a fan. I'm just a big fan of his music. And uh, I was listening to Harry Nielsen this morning, seeing a, a documentary on Harry Nielsen. I'm thinking, yeah, Charlie Kogan has a lot of Harry Nielsen. <laughs> so like, you know, that's, uh, I see when I look at Brian Wilson or Harry Nielsen or Paul McCartney, I, Billy Joel, I see a lot of my son. He had a lot of, a lot of really cool influences. You could tell his style yeah. was, I, I know I, I emailed you after I listened to the album twice. I've now listened to it many more times. It became my background and I started listening. Oh, I great. really, because I, I, I want to make it clear. I'm not, yeah. This is, I am under no obligation to I am not. Son. I, 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 no, no, but I mean it. Like I would never yeah. say it with this much. Uh, I, 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 I believe you. Yeah, first no, of all, I, just, I believe I was, you. And second of all, I, you're not the first. It's yeah, I know. really people saying. who listen to it. It gets very addicting. And the only complaint is he doesn't produce enough music. Like he, there should be more Charlie Kogan music out there. If you go on Spotify, if you are listeners, the tens of thousands of listeners to the show should go on Spotify and listen to Charlie Kogan. That's K-O-G-E-N. And if you like smart lyrics, really great melodies, really good music production, that's what you get. It's like, uh, it's, it's not, it's almost a throwback a little bit to another era. But it's still, I, I really like it. I think what one of the things that kind of caught me is I had a friend that would find music like that, meaning like great music that you didn't know existed. And, mm -hmm. and so I just kept thinking of him. And so, and like, yeah, so it was, it's called Songs from the Front Seat is the album. There's a couple extra songs out there also. All right, so everyone check that out. There's your bonus, little Charlie bonus for you. <laughs> Charlie Kogan, that's what, that's what it's all about. That's what, I'm here to promote him because he's too fucking lazy to promote himself. <laughs> he's so good. I, like, I saw his, you know, a video of him and he's got, he has the hair that I had. I don't know how old he is, but he, he seems much younger. Right now he's 20, but yeah, yeah he's got hair. He's, but, uh, you know, that doesn't stay... Yeah, I, uh, in the Kogan family, it's not. Uh, although my dad has a full head of hair, so I don't know. I, it it lost me. I had no forehead in college. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm all forehead now. So, all right, Jeff, how do how did you become a podcast? I'm fascinated. You're sitting here in professional equipment. You've got a boom mic, which I'm jealous of. You know, how do you how do you decide one day I'm going to become a podcaster? Well, I do stand up comedy, so I've been doing right. that for pushing 20 years. And when the pandemic hit, I had no creative outlet. So like many stories that you hear uh, of the positive side of the, of what came out of the pandemic where a lot of creative endeavors blossomed, mm -hmm. this was mine. So you just, you shot right past sourdough bread and went to the podcast. Let's just say 
the reason I was able to shoot right to podcast is because in 2017, I started the podcast in May 2020. In 2017, I bought all the equipment. <laughs> So, okay. <laughs> so it, it sat on my desk as long as my wife would allow it before it ended right. up in a box. And then when the pandemic hit, I finally was able to get it out of the box. Got it. And then started it. Because so. I'm thinking of starting my own podcast. You should. It's basically a show about your podcast. <laughs> I like Those are really big each, right now. <laughs> yeah. Each episode would be about each episode of your podcast. And I'd go back and review it with other people and we sort of break it down. That would be good. <laughs> <laughs> Those are so hot right now. I would love. Yeah, I know. I would. I I would subscribe. And then I want to do a reaction video of people listening to my podcast about your podcast and just what they think, just like on YouTube. Just them, a video of them listening to it. I'm worried that your podcast would become more popular than my podcast. Yeah, <laughs> then maybe. where would we go? <laughs> I'm really. I actually have a podcast that I'm starting to make called "Don't Be Alone with Jay Kogan." I like it. I like it. When yeah. are you launching? When are you launching? I don't know. It's made, it took you three years. Give me a shot. Give me a second. <laughs> Give me a goddamn second. You had 2017 to 2020. I need a, I need a few weeks, but I've, I've got to go soon. My son is supposed to write music for it, and I'm just really waiting for the music. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, originally, I'm into social media and all that. Originally, my podcast in 2017 was going to be a social media-based business tips, and it was going to be called Viral Intentions because you know, things go viral on the internet and it was a play on Cruel Intentions, the mm -hmm. movie. And right. so when I finally, when the pandemic hit and it was 2020 and I pull everything out, I'm like, and I had everything, intro, outro, art, everything ready to go. I'm like, you know, people are dying all over. I'm like, I can't launch a podcast called Viral Intentions. <laughs> I purposely chose the name Don't Be Alone with Jake Hogan to be, um, you know, a double entendre. It's a worrying title, first of all. I wanted to do a podcast about connectivity and how people connect and how people don't connect in this particular day and age and finding ways to get more connection in your life that's not screen-based. I'll figure figure that out. I'm Am I qualified to make such a podcast? I think you Absolutely are. Absolutely not. Well, no, I'm not. That makes you but qualified. But I will, I will do it anyway. <laughs> I think if anything has been proven, you don't have to be qualified. <laughs> that's right. I have that quali qualification that I'm not qualified. Oh, man. All right. So before the podcast launches, when a uh, little Jay Kogan, yes. growing up with a father, writer of Mad Magazine, sure. who, by the way, Mad Magazine, I was obsessed with like many kids as a kid, but I used to cut out all of the, all the little strips and stuff. And I literally made wallpaper in my bedroom, my entire and, wall. And the margins, the margin art? Like all of the art, like every, everything okay. I did. I, so if mm -hmm. like you walked in, Every square inch of my thing was wow. wallpaper, Mad Magazine. Love. That's like serial killer stuff. I know. But all right. <laughs> Nowadays, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Looking back, yes. So, yeah. all right. So obviously you had a huge influence. How, do I, let me, Jeff, yeah. how old, age range. You don't have to give me the exact, but how old are you? 50-ish. 50-ish. Okay, so 50-ish. So you, when you were five or six, Mad Magazine was the thing. Mm -hmm. But then- Pretty soon after that, either you switched over to, if you're young, if you're old enough, National Lampoon or maybe Spy Magazine or something like that, depending upon where your your humor lay. Like, Mad Magazine seemed to be the perfect for somebody who was under 12, right? I'm, I never let go of Mad Magazine. I was right. I was hardcore. I didn't. You still subscribe? No, I don't. Well, some, well somebody as, let go. As a <laughs> <laughs> 
as a kid, I was hardcore dedicated, mm-hmm. you know, but sure. But I only knew what I knew. I, I maybe not even right. been aware of Spy Magazine and all those. So, all right. Well, I knew Spy I versus Spy, but that was, you know. Sure. That's right from yeah. Mad Magazine. But, you know, a Mad, Mad Magazine, I grew up with Mad Magazine. I grew up, I actually went to the Mad Magazine offices and I always imagined it would be some crazy, wild, nutty place. And cra- it was the most boring, like, like accountants, but you know they were like in a in an old building, dusty, you know, very sort of old secretaries quietly typing. It was like the saddest experience of my life was going to the offices of Mad Magazine, thinking these crazy band of idiots. Is, they, there's nothing crazy going on here. There's you know there's a ledger. That's the craziest thing that was happening. Pay no attention Magazine. to the men behind the curtain. Yeah, yeah. But Bill Gaines' office was cool. His particular office was more like your bedroom when you were a kid, filled with junk everywhere. When you're dead, did I stump you? No, I no, think no, I stumped you. No, no, I was just yes. I mean, was it cool then? I mean, did you love having being with Mad Magazine being so hot and your yeah. dad being such a huge part of it, right? Yeah. You know, I right? got a lot of juice from my friends because I was they liked Mad Magazine and I had access to not because my dad was a writer, but I had access to the magazine and those books. They used to send us like Al Jaffe books or whatever, and I, I had access to them so I could hand them out sometimes. So that was my uh, that was my power in second and third grade. Right. But that power fell by the wayside very quickly. Over time. Over time. Uh, same thing. My, my dad was uh, a writer, producer of like the Carol Burnett show and some variety shows. And then eventually did Donnie and Marie show. And it's just at the time, Donnie Marie was kind of okay for elementary school students. But just when I got into junior high, it was very clear they were not cool. <laughs> they were not cool. <laughs> and there was no, excuse me, no juice to be had from having a dad in show business, but doing the Donnie Marie show. So I would keep that on the down low. Those, were, just the talk da- about those other, were the dark years. <laughs> yeah. To talk about other projects that were, might've been cooler that he, he had done. Well, he did Rich Little yeah. show, Tim Conway's show, Empty Nest. Right. He wrote one episode of The Love Boat. He did. He did. He wrote, he wrote many, 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 many shows. And they're all, I st- I've seen most of them. And he's, he's a great writer. Every time I write a pilot, I give it to him and say, make this better. And he'll always have good notes and good jokes and stuff like that. You know, it's great. The other thing was when I was a kid, he valued laughter. So I used to try and make him laugh. And that ultimately encouraged me to be a, a comedian and a, and a writer. So that kind of helped. He was a silly man at work. At his work, he was a silly man. He would put whipped cream on his face and fall into rooms and do that kind of stuff. At home, not so silly. <laughs> well, it, that not that how it usually is? Like your yeah. dad or whoever is funny at work my dad was a funny dentist so yeah yeah well oh, that's good. to his patients at least but better yeah. better to be the funny dentist than the really depressing dentist so that's <laughs> exactly good. exactly yeah so this influence this was a huge influence on you then and but did you oh my god gigantic yeah so did you then know that you're like i'm gonna be a writer or did you want to oh i knew really really early i had no desire at all to be a writer like really, very early. From like the, the the earliest memories were my dad alone in his office, unhappily typing. And I thought, oh, that's a terrible job. I do not want that job. And to this day, the worst part of my job is actually writing, is actually doing that job, which is sitting alone in an office, trying to think of something funny, and then hacking away at a, an empty page or, you know, a, a compu- empty c- computer screen. I hated it. And I still to this day don't love it. But they wouldn't pay me to be a stand-up. They wouldn't really pay. I got a few jobs as a stand-up, a few jobs as an actor. But as a writer, they started paying me. So it turns out that was my value. The marketplace determined what I should be. 
And even though I didn't want to be a writer, they, they made me a writer. Well, you gave it a swing at stand-up, and you were, you were in the Groundlings, too, right? Yeah, yeah, I was. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, and the groundlings is the place where, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a way station. You don't, to become king of the groundlings is to become lost forever <laughs> in, <laughs> in a, in an improv troupe and never working, but it's a nice place to learn and a nice little sort of, you know, environment. And I still am grateful to the groundlings and improv in general for rescuing me from standup, which was horrifying. Horrifying. You know, well, I, I started when I was 16 years old. I was very young club scene, not great for really young kids. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's just like, it was, had uh, things to recommend it, but also I was not, there are really young comedians who can make the scene, who are like hanging out with the boys in the back. I was not one of those guys. I was more innocent than, than that and also just uncomfortable. I couldn't make that scene. So that social world of bitter comedians, people who are drinking or taking drugs or smoking cigarettes or, you know, just shitting on each other, like, insulting each other and trying to pick up on, on ladies. None of that was what I could do when I was 16. So I moved off of stand-up fairly quickly within a year and then moved over to improv. And at the Groundlings, the big diff one of the big differences was it was a theater and not a nightclub. And in a nightclub, people are drinking and talking and heckling. And at theater, people are much better mannered. <laughs> They're there to see a show. So I didn't have to work on my my crowd work and my how to settle people. I had a, more of an opportunity to try and just write scenes and characters and that kind of thing. In a, in a stand-up comedy, you have to sort of perfect a persona of some kind. What's your brand? What kind of comedy do you do? And then at the Groundlings, you could be many different things. And that was more appealing to me. Very cool. Especially since my persona as a stand-up comedian was not great. <laughs> it's hard. It takes time to find a voice and do all that. Yeah, exactly. But if exactly. if we know that, since we know the end story, probably acting and creating all different kinds of characters is something that was probably- I still act. I'm still happy to act. And I love directing. Directing is one of my favorite things these days. Uh, I don't get a chance to do it often because no one will hire me but me. But when I get to hire myself to do stuff, it's my favorite thing because it's really collaborative. It's fun. It's on its feet. It's about motion and action and visualization. And that's the kind of stuff that I really enjoy. I don't get to exercise that as much when I'm writing. Writing is very verbal and it's oral. Not oral, but oral. And it's about hearing the sounds and the music and the words and the timing and all that kind of stuff. It's just a different muscle. So I really like the directing muscle. So one of your director credits on IMDb is 2008 MTV Movie Awards, Mike Myers segments. Yes. What's your connection with Mike Myers specifically? Well, Mike and I used to work a lot together on a lot of different things. I worked, I worked on all the uh, Austin Powers movies. And I worked on uh, the Shrek movies. I made a movie called The Wrong Guy many years ago. With and Dave it's Foley. It's one of Mike Myers. With Dave Foley. It's one of Mike Myers' favorite movies, or at least it was at the time. And he said, I want some of that wrong guy stuff in my movies. I said, okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give you what I got. And so I would work, collaborate with him and uh, try to come up with funny bits. And in the MTV Movie Awards, um, I got to direct Mike which is basically turn a camera on Mike. It's not, there was no, you know, Scorsese-like, this is what it is, turn a camera on Mike, let him do stuff, and then edit it, do some 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 editing, then show it to Mike and make sure Mike approves, and then put back the stuff Mike likes, you know. So it wasn't it wasn't uh, auteur business, but it was really just being a, a nice sort of comedy partner or even a comedy assistant to Mike Myers, which is a good job. He's really funny. Oh, and for, yeah, and for that period of time back then, I mean, it was... yeah. So hot. No, is he bringing he back that funny. character? 
I had read that he was bringing back uh, Austin Powers. Yeah. Uh, every few years, I hear that there's a new Austin Powers in the making, and then it it uh, doesn't appear yet. But maybe I hope so. It's really funny. You know, I don't know. I mean, Mike seems to be a very happy father and living in New York and and just and and enjoying his life. So he has enough money and he doesn't need to work. So I don't think he he doesn't. And it's painful to do what he does is a very painful process. Again, we're describing the pain of of comedy, the work. It's hard to sit and write. It's hard to be a character and risk being a comedian on screen. It's a very risky business. And you feel that pressure to be funny. And that pressure to be funny is antithetical to sort of the light joy that you're supposed to project when you are being Austin Powers. So it's one of those things where you have to repress all your insecurities and your anger and your upsetness and then project light and funny. And and he was able to do it for a long time, but it was really... You know, it takes its toll. And it's also more of a young man's game than an older man's game. And maybe, you know, maybe people don't want to see an older fella in his 50s dressed up in goofy makeup. I don't know. Well, hopefully one day he'll find the right character to kind of come back. I think I feel like that's what usually maybe, happens. Maybe. Or, or he, he did that gong, uh, the Gong Show remake that was done a few years ago. Oh, they right. played a strange sort of music hall character on that thing, which is something I think he really wanted to do. And he liked that idea. Um, and then there was a sketch show that he was going to do that never wound up appearing. But Stutter Steps, he, I hope he comes back too, because he is enormously talented, enormously smart, and incredibly gifted. The other thing I found with Mike Myers that was attached to your name when I did a Google was you were connected to a remake of The Secret Life of Walter Mitty That's with right. Mike Myers. This is uh, before right. the Ben Stiller 2013, right. Yeah, back in 2007. 20th Century Fox owned the rights somehow, or was dealing with the rights of the Walter Mitty movie, which was made by Samuel Goldman's company many years ago. Danny Kaye was the original star. And I love that movie. I mean, the Danny Kaye, Walter Mitty was one of my favorite movies, one of my father's favorite movies growing up, and he showed it to me a million times. And so I really liked that movie. And I thought, oh, great, we're going to do the Court Chester. And then Mike had his own ideas, as he always does, about what the, what, not Court Chester, but Walter Mitty what Walter Mitty should be. We wanted to make it different and interesting. And, and uh, so we, we set about to write an outline of his version of Walter Mitty. And suffice to say that it was a very difficult process between Mike being an incredibly creative person and the studio wanting basically a very formulaic version of Walter Mitty, a man who is timid, but then dreams and then uses those dreams to propel himself forward. It ultimately didn't mesh up. You know, like many movies I've started, <laughs> I did not get to finish, but we tried. And then uh, it went to one or two other comedian stops before it got to Ben Stiller. And then Ben got excited about doing it his way. And then uh, he made that movie. So there you go. And I, you know, I think the idea of Walter Mitty is a great idea. You don't need the auspices of the Thurber short stories to make that timid person grows out of their timidity to become an actualized human. That's a story that a lot of people do. Uh, and it's, uh, I never get tired of it. I think it's a very good premise for a story to awaken yourself. Awaken yourself is a good premise. Oh, what could have been? What could have been? Yeah, it's all right. I'm not, I don't mourn the loss of it because the outline we wrote, which was literally, which was, had a certain amount of insanity to it. It would have been a fine movie, but there was no way anybody, as I was writing it, I knew no way anybody was going to make this movie about, it had Nazis in it. It had, this is before, 
Trump made Nazis cool again. <laughs> oh, uh, there goes half my audience. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not a fan of the Nazis. Let me just put it that way. When I was born, I didn't think you had to say that. But now apparently you do have to make it very clear that you're not a fan of Nazis. It never hurts just to slip it into the conversation. Yeah. yeah. There was, uh, I think, ghosts and Nazis and spies and secret fortresses and under New York, under Manhattan, there was a whole world going on. There's a lot of different things actually happening in that movie that for a million different reasons, both financially and commercially, we're not going to be doing Samuel and Samuel Goldwyn Jr., who at the time was alive and a thousand years old, was had to give their seal of approval on this thing, which was sort of a jewel in the crown of his father's work. And there's no way he was going to sign off on that for, you know, this is like, this is the thing. And I, I, I imagine, I think he, he had passed by the time Ben Stiller did his, but uh, we, had to, we had to go through the gauntlet of Sam Goldwyn Jr. Or it could have been Sam Goldwyn Jr. Jr. I'm not sure which Sam Goldwyn, but one of them. One of them. All right. Well, we'll let that, we'll let it go. We'll let, All right. <laughs> we'll move on. All right. Let's pivot to Tracy Ullman's show. This is like one of your- Settle down, Jeff. Come on. Get your, catch your breath. <laughs> I know it's been pretty exciting. It is. I mean, the full right. oral history of what of the Walter Mitty movie that could have been. <laughs> you go through this grocery list of my career. It does. It doesn't sound good as you read it. Like, oh, uh, let's go to. Uh, I don't know. No, Tracy Ullman show. What are you talking? No. All right. I feel, I feel like I'm not going 100 percent chronological on purpose. I'm trying, right. to, I'm trying to. No, but the Tracy Ullman show. This is what kind of eventually leads you to The Simpsons, right? And so you were there at the beginning of The Tracy Ullman. Well, The Tracy Ullman Show first led me to The Tracy Ullman Show. Well, right. And well, right I after that. Well, I meant yeah, while you were there. But, but that was a big deal for me to get a job as a professional writer on anything was great, let alone getting, I got on the show, I fell into this thing where I'm working with James L. Brooks, one of the my heroes, like, holy shit, how did that happen? I was writing with my my uh, my friend Wally Walidarski, who was a my writing partner for a few years, and also my buddy from high school. We were like, we get to write, that's fabulous. Like uh, we were getting sandwiches for people literally days before, and now people are letting paying us much more money to sit in an office, and occasionally people get sandwiches for us. It was a much better deal. <laughs> oh, man. So you're you're Simpsons royalty, right? So you've been you were right there at the beginning. Is it royalty now? I think, Are I we think saying so. that Simpsons think, has royalty? I think so. I, I've had Al Jean and Mike Reese on the show. <laughs> Those are that was is Matt. Is Matt Groening our king? <laughs> I think so. And Sam All Simon, right. right? So, yeah. but you were like one of the original crew that helped kind of right. uh, evolve the shorts from Tracy Ullman. I and, was there. I was there before Al Jean and Mike Reese. Shockingly, just a little bit before them. They came from yeah, the we, It's Gary Shandling show. Which is what I, a show I worked on prior to that. I worked with Sam Simon on It's Gary Shandling show, which is why I, I showed him a script I wrote, and he pushed that script over to the Tracy Ullman show, and it helped get me that job. So it was Sam Simon was the connective tissue to all of this. And then when I worked on the Tracy Ullman show, Wally Walidarski and I were the first people he had said, will you work on The Simpsons with us? And I said, absolutely. And then James L. Brooks said, yeah, they can do it with you, but they still have to stay on the Tracy Ullman show for a little while. So we couldn't be the, the number twos, but we could be part of it. And we were. How involved were you with like the kind of the evolution of the characters from Tracy Ullman, the bumpers, to to what became the family in that season one? Homer was very different. Yeah. You know, the, the right. Yeah, the style of all. I was not. It was. I mean, the, the Tracy Ullman bumpers were a, a, a fiefdom all to their sel- themselves. Matt Groening and and uh, David Silverman and uh, another producer kind of worked those things out and helped write them and animate them, and that was that thing. And then, but we would show them, and they'd be very popular. And 
my partner and I really liked them and, and said, do you want to work on the show? I said, absolutely. This is going to be great. And because we're brand new and stupid and didn't see any risk in doing an animated cartoon when nobody else thought an animated primetime cartoon was a good idea for the last 30 years. But we did it anyway, and we thought it was good. And, and what evolved was when you have to tell a story that's more than 30 seconds long, sometimes you need a little bit more depth to the character than dad. The, the, the Simpsons cartoon, the interstitials, it was it was just mom, dad, boy, girl, baby. I don't know that they even had names, but you know they were just boy, girl, baby, and they didn't have personalities, and they didn't really have anything other than the family familial situations to live in and a certain amount of anxiety. So that's what the, the family was had ang- anxiety or mad at each other most of the time. So. That's what we were starting with. And then Sam Simon and Matt Groening, when it became a series, and and Jim Brooks, developed it into a much bigger world. Not just a a family that had distinct personalities and distinct... Everybody has their own place in the family. And they had their own place in a city uh, and a neighborhood and amongst friends and amongst where they live. And the city had its own place in America. And it was literally... You know, explosion of, well, we need a psychiatrist and we need a bus driver and we need a school teacher and a principal and we need a neighbor and we need, you know, bullies and we need policemen and mayors. And so it was, we got to build an entire world. And one of the smart things we did was do all that, which you can't do on a normal TV show because you can't afford to pay all those actors. Right. You can't afford to build all those sets. So nobody does it. But in an animated show, we were able to do all of it and we could have pay the same actor to do many, many, many voices and it would cost just the same. So it made sense, you know, and unfortunately we used that same actors to do people of all their races and cultures. And that was maybe a mistake of ours, but we didn't know back then, but it was great fun to, to write all those crazy people, make everyone a butt of a joke, whether it be, you know, a mayor or a doctor or a uh, bus driver or a school teacher, any, you know, any, anybody in the show was their comedic flaw was readily available to see. And so you try to exploit that as much as possible. And it was so much fun, so freeing to write a cartoon. You could write scenes, you know, airplane crashes and football stadium shows that the things and they would draw it and you'd do it. Whereas on the Tracy Ullman show, we were sort of limited to a set and four actors. And that was great, but it was also limiting. I love hearing your point of view because some of the other stories were like, don't worry, we don't even know if this will last. You may not have to, you may never have to tell someone you worked on a cartoon. Like in the very, before, obviously when the first episode aired, it became the biggest thing in the world. But before that, kind of leading up to it. Yeah. But all that's true too. People told us not to do it. That My dad was one person who said, don't do it. Your cartoon's a stupid idea. But- we also knew that, you know, I'm 23 years old. If I'm on a failure cartoon, that's not the end of me. That's just one credit. That one credit doesn't destroy you. So really, the danger was very low for me. I mean, pretty high for Sam Simon and Matt Graney, but not for me. But it seemed so much more exciting and fun than it was dangerous or precarious or any of that. It, and it really was because that's animation is... is uh, Writing an animated TV show is like writing a little movie. You really had access to all things that you wanted to tell your story. You didn't have time, I guess. That's the one thing you had. Very limited time. You have to rush through a story in 22, 23 minutes. When you look back, are you glad that you just had this real successful slice of time there? Or do you wish you had stayed longer? Because I know, every, I'm, I'm guessing, like, no one guessed it would still be on, right? <laughs> 
No, we left after five years thinking we're done. We were being offered other opportunities to do things. I'm glad I left. Not because I uh, I want to leave those people in that world. I liked it. But I, the people were offering us other opportunities to do other things. I'd never worked on a regular multicam sitcom. I'd never worked on a single cam sitcom. I'd never made a film before. I'd never, you know, really, I'd done The Groundlings and The Tracy Ullman Show and The Simpsons. I want to do more. I want to do all kinds of things. You know, staying at The Simpsons is committing to like doing that same thing. And we were, after five years of mining our childhoods, uh, both Wally and I were pretty exhausted. Saying, like, I think we've really, we've mined our childhood. They did, you know, they've done a, a million, I don't know, eight different shows about Batman on The Simpsons. And I'm sure with the new release of The Batman, they'll probably do another one. But I mean, how many times, What? how much do we have to say about The Batman? Yeah, like, we've we've said a lot already in the past thirty years, and there's I guess there's more to say. But I, as a writer, want to try to do other things and grow a little bit. And I'm jealous of the stability of an income that I'm jealous of because as a writer, you rarely get that. I mean, nobody has what Al Jean had, which is just like a an enormous. He knows what he's been doing for um, every year. It's literally like working at GM or just some giant corporation, and he'll get a gold watch and retire eventually. But that's that's what I'm jealous of. I'm not jealous of having worked there for that long. I think I'm better off as a person to have branched out and made more, uh, had more experiences, more some other successes and some other failures. But at least they're they help me grow as a person and as a writer. If I had to do it all again, I would still go. Good answer. Let me ask you a question about an episode you wrote, like Father, like Clown. Mm -hmm. So this was sort of like the first of many pretty heavy-duty Jewish themes, bringing in Jackie Mason and and making Krusty Jewish. I watched all of them. I kind of found them all, and then they go to Israel and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. A lot of Jewish writers in the room. But like, was it cool to like just to be able to kind of bring a sense of Judaism and like a little spotlight of that on this show? I guess so. I mean, what was interesting was the impetus of the show was to do the jazz singer, but with a clown. Right. So that was the, that was the the joke. But then everybody said, okay, if you're going to do the jazz singer, the thing about it is, even though it's a cartoon, we're going to do it for real. We want rabbis to consult. We want to, we want, I literally use the Talmud as a basis for decision-making for the rabbi and for Krusty. And like, they wanted us to go deeper to dig deeper. And that's just good writing. And that's just a good policy. That's just a really good creative way to approach things. And that's not just for Jewish shows. That's for everything we ever did. That's, you know, let's go deeper. If they if Lady Gaga is on the show, let's go deeper into her beginnings and who she is and what she's going to do. And yeah, I mean, for me, it was a pleasure to do because I'm Jewish. I was raised Jewish. I got to my, the rabbi who bar mitzvahed me and, and also married me and my wife was a consultant on the show and helped us find the right Talmudic verses. Uh, I, I consulted three different rabbis and Jackie Mason, who is also went to yeshiva and knew some of that stuff. I, it, you know, to represent Judaism in a smart, interesting way uh, that had not been represented so much on television and honestly still is not represented on television is a great thing. And I think that's one of my goals is to continue to have a Jewish family that's not just about, I don't know, banking or money or something like like talk about what it is to be philosophically jewish that i really like because yeah there's something in the culture about how we approach life that's interesting and very beneficial to those of us who grew up jewish and are either culturally jewish or religious it's the thought that we can that everything's a question nothing is taken for granted why do we do anything that's inherent in judaism and it's inherent in being a comedy writer it's the same thing or being a comedian. 
what is our reason for doing this? And let's look at it. Let's take it apart and let's make sure it's it makes sense. And maybe there are deeper meanings in all of it that we can find and make ourselves feel a little bit more connected and a little bit more bonded to each other. How great. How great. You know, that's, that's, that's what you hope for. It has one of my favorite lines <laughs> when, Ho- when Homer says, Mel Brooks is Jewish? I can't do it. <laughs> yeah, that is a very funny joke. And I don't believe it's my joke, but I really like it. I think it may be my partner's joke, Wally Wolodarski. I know that when they're not my joke, because I get to laugh at them. <laughs> like, like, oh, that's really funny. The other thing is that I found, uh, the, the other thing I read, is Last Exit to Springfield, considered one of the greatest, considered the greatest episode of The Simpsons. However, I also read in the same article, you do not believe that to be the case. I don't have a, I mean, I'm agnostic about it. It's like, do they want to, I haven't seen, I haven't seen every episode of The Simpsons. So I don't know what's the greatest episode of The Simpsons, what's not. And I suspect that the greatest episode of The Simpsons wasn't necessarily in the first five years of production of The Simpsons, that they've had many, many years of great, great, great shows. So, but my favorite episode was not that. I like that episode a lot, but my favorite episode is Bart the Daredevil, which is about Homer jumping, Bart jumping over a canyon like Evil Knievel. Last Night at Springfield has some really funny jokes in it uh, that one of the ones that I wrote that I like the best is, there's a moment where Homer has to decide whether he wants a beer or his daughter should get he- uh, dental care. He goes back and forth, back and forth with this idea. And the, it's clearly, the right answer is clearly fight for the health care. Sure, sure. But his brain is such that beer sounds pretty good. So he goes back and forth. And the, the way we wrote it was, it's Homer's inner thoughts. And he's going up. But we wrote it for two pages for him saying, dental care, beer, dental care, beer, dental care. Beer. <laughs> and Al Jean looked at it and said, What did you mean to write two pages of this? And then, yes. Thought it, if it went on really long time, it would stop being funny and then start being funny again and then start being really funny. And it got it wasn't quite as long as we wrote it, but it was it's a really it's a brave joke. Let's put it that way. It's brave for a Oh yeah, for I rewatched I rewatched it because I wanted to check it out. The uh mm-hmm. yeah, I feel like Family Guy took that trope from you. <laughs> Like, yeah, they yeah. took a lot from The Simpsons, yeah. and by the and they're and they're they took a lot from everywhere. They're very funny though. That Family oh, Guy is yeah, a very yeah. funny show, so it's all good. But I think Bart the Daredevil is closest to my heart because I like the message of it. I like the the closest the father son journey of it, and I just think it's funnier. I just think it's funnier. There's a lovely father. That's my personal. No, there's a lovely father son moment just before he, he, the skateboard starts to accidentally go down the hill. <laughs> right. He says, "I you don't do it. I will do it. I'll 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 go across the canyon because I won't let my son do it." And he says, "So you do that for me, of course, son. I love you." And he says, "Well, then you don't have to jump the canyon, Dad, because I love you too." And then as he's celebrating his emotional victory with his son, the skateboard starts moving that he's on and starts rolling towards uh, this horrible canyon jump. That's a great scene, and the canyon fall is a great scene. And there's a million there's a million jokes in that whole show, not just the canyon part that I just love, <laughs> and so I will always like it. I like it forever. Yeah. You don't just put him in the hospital. You put him in the hospital. I mean, <laughs> we do put him in. He falls down a canyon twice. Twice. And really the ambulance hits the yeah. tree and he falls out. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great, that, you know, Buster Keaton style comedy bit when we wrote it. We didn't know that the animators were going to do it so great. And they did it exactly right. I mean, that is so well executed. So well. It's, 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 a, it's a great episode. Great episode. Do you have any favorite guest stars? Or if you think it's more fun to talk about ones that you didn't like, feel free to answer that. <laughs> I don't know. I'm pretty starstruck with uh, all of them. I was star- I mean, we had, 
Uh, the Tracy Ullman Show, we had Steven Spielberg and Steve Martin, and oh, you know wow. they had a lot of cool guest stars on the Tracy Ullman Show. But but uh, on The Simpsons, let's see, I really like Tom Jones. Tom Jones was on the show, I believe. We had uh, Tony Bennett sing a song on the show. That was pretty awesome. Nice, nice, we, yeah. We had a series of baseball players that were just, you know, major league all-stars that were coming one by one into the studio. Danny DeVito and Penny Marshall and Albert Brooks and... You know, they're all pretty good. Michael Jackson showed up. That was cool. I mean, you know, lots of cool people showed up and we got to work with them. I got to direct Dustin Hoffman in, on a show. That was fun. That's an uncredited spot, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah. I mean, I did a no, lot no, of uncred- yeah. Everybody did. No, I meant Dustin Hoffman. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. him too. Yes. He yeah. come, He had some sort of Jewish name, like, you know, yeah. big nose something. I don't know exactly what he did, how he, how he credited himself. Because people are afraid to be on cartoons. I don't know why. They thought it would damage their reputation. Now people have no problem with it. No, now it's a, a badge of honor. And and Dustin Hoffman's de- reputation wound up being damaged by Dustin Hoffman years later. So who knows? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, so after The Simpsons, you made your way to Frasier. How, how did you how did you get that job? Because that's a that's a completely different. I imagine it's a completely different like writing style and and the whole different. Well, that's why I went there is because I thought it would be a better resume if I wasn't if it wasn't just. I had a choice between going on Seinfeld and Frasier. I was offered a job at both shows. Oh, so and okay. even though Seinfeld was a great great funny show, Frasier I felt was a different kind of show that a guy like me probably needed to work on to sort of hone my craft as a writer to write that kind of sort of smart, classy shows that, that they make at, uh, at Frasier. So I, I took that job and I do not regret it. Although Larry David, when I run into him, he, he gives me shit about it every time, but nonetheless, I'm happy I did it. I have a clip. I, I, I have a clip of your Emmy speech. It's not the whole speech. Oh, thank God. There's a really funny line, but wait, because I have to, I want to ask you about the end, which is more classic than the, uh, Initial joke. Hang on. I want to thank my mentor, Sam Simon, who took a chance on a well-connected, rich white kid. (laughs) I want to thank the best comedy writer I know, my father, Arnie Kogan, for being well-connected and rich. (laughs) I want to thank my mother, Sue Kogan, Remax Center, Encino, for all your Valley and West Side real estate needs. (laughs) 818-501-7362. All right, that to me was the funniest thing ever. <laughs> yeah, well, it was intended to be funny. My uh, my whole uh, theory of Emmys, my father has three Emmys. My whole theory of, of Emmys was that Emmy awards, or awards in general, are kind of bullshit, right? They're not, when was the last time you went to an award show and go, oh man, that movie absolutely was the best movie of the year, or that show is absolutely the best TV show, hands down, no question. You know, it's a crapshoot. You get lucky, you get, somehow you get nominated, you get in there, and you got a one out of five chance of winning, and if you win, great. And I'm not saying it doesn't mean you're not a good writer, but it doesn't mean you are a good writer. It's like, it's an award show, and it's just lucky. So the what you really can get out of the whole thing is, you can try to be funny. Like, that's it. Like, failed stand-up comedian, I'm going to try and get a laugh. That's all I wanted to do, was get up there, and as nervous as it was, try to squeeze out a bunch of laughs and I did my best and um, I'm very I'm glad that that those jokes work now giving out my mother's real estate n- number uh, I thought would be funny everyone thought well did your mom get a lot of business and the answer is no she did not get a lot of business that's what I wanted nobody to know. called that number I, nobody called they just assumed it was nobody called number. that number no I don't think that <laughs> that advertising uh, of a, a sort of 
a fat, nervous man spewing out a number. The tuxedo was catching the eye of real estate buyers and sellers in that in that moment. It was it was really funny. But you made a reference to the sandwiches that you because Gary Shandling gave you the award, right? And so you say, oh, I used, I used to uh, bring Gary sandwiches, and then you also not in the clip I played said, I've I guess this proves I'm objectively better than David E. Kelly. You listening, That's Michelle? Right. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And then they cut to right. them. That was great. <laughs> how how uh, good did it feel? Like so, you had that all prepared, right? You're ready to act. sure. I wrote it out. It took a while. I honed it down, even though it's really super long. I cut it down. Sure, yeah. So like, was it like? I mean, this is a one shot, right? It's one thing when you do stand up comedy or anything, right. right? You do it, and if it you can hone it, you can do it better the next right. time. This is a once and done. <laughs> right. So it's like, once and done. I mean, so you had to nail it that first time. And you did. You went out with all the confidence that you needed to like just ignite this the one time it was going to work and go for it. It was it was great. I rehearsed it. I tried to do it. You know, I was nervous. I was very nervous. I think on the clip, I'm like, my hand is shaking with a piece of paper. I'm very nervous, but I was like, I'm committed to doing the bits. That was it. The one thing I did that really messed things up was one of the writers of Frasier, who's I mentioned everybody else's name. I didn't mention my friend Rob Greenberg's name. Somehow I omitted it. I'm, I'm just going down the list and I passed right over it. So I feel I feel bad. And then later on the night, Rob Greenberg said, what did I what did I do to get you mad? <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? I said, you didn't say my name. Oh, of course I said your name. And then I look back, I did not say his name. So Rob Greenberg, I love you. And I, I, was, I say thank you for helping me win my Emmy. <laughs> well, there you go. This is it. This is like, yeah. th- like this is like that Tosh redemption. So, all right, cool. All right. The other question I have, and I'm just really curious if, if you don't want to answer this, you don't have to, but what happened Jesus. with the iCarly reboot? Um, that's a good question. Um, I'm trying to think of what I'm allowed to say. Hmm. The network said it was creative differences. So I think that's what I'm allowed to say. That's creative differences. And I think, let me just say this. I was as surprised as anyone to find out that I was no longer working at, at iCarly, a show that I, I helped create the revival of. It was just got a call and said, you're not working here anymore. I went, why? And they went, you're just not working here anymore. I went, is there a reason? This is creative differences. I said, with who? <laughs> who, is the, who are the differences with? Um, and that's all I know. So creative differences, I'm pretty sure I know who the creative difference is with, but I don't, I don't know for sure because I never spoke to that. Those people are that person. Right. The article I read said Miranda year. Cosgrove. And that, but you wrote the first episode still. You still had credit for that. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I wrote the, I, I, re, I created a sh- the show, the new version of the show, co-created with the writing partner. And yeah, we got, and, and she stayed and I got, I got let go. And it's like, well, what happened? It's like, I didn't, I didn't meet to anybody. Let's put it that It's like, <laughs> we did everything we did with did on zoom. So I was in, I was in no room to touch or like the COVID covers me on that basis. But uh, <laughs> apparently some part of my creative voice or manner rubbed some people the wrong way. And again, in order to get paid all the money that I was owed, they said, we would like you to just keep it at that. So I'm going to keep it at that. Well, more importantly, so a revival that you did that must have loved you because you were there the whole time, Punky Brewster. So you're like king of the revivals all of a sudden. What was? <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's not that I'm king of the revivals. It's that media giant media companies are raiding their libraries because they find it more profitable and safer than actually investing in new ideas. So I'm king of the survivors 
<laughs> trying to, <laughs> trying to work in a world where old IP is valued more than good new ideas. Right. All right. Well, oh, and but, then but, I, I, okay, go ahead. But Punky Brewster was a really great experience. I've really enjoyed, I enjoyed working on iCarly too, up until the day I did. <laughs> until the there. day you weren't. Yeah. Yeah. But I've really, I enjoy uh, the Punky Brewster gang was terrific and the actors were great. And they, you know, it was hard working through COVID to make that show. Jim and, and, uh, and Steve Armagita, who created that show, are geniuses. And I would work with them on, I worked with them on School of Rock before that. And it was, they're just great. So yeah, that was a great experience. Uh, and it's tough in, to be a writer in COVID time because you're alone, you're at home, except you're on, and then occasionally you're on Zoom a lot. But it's not really like working on a show. There's no energy. You're not in the room. It's it's kind of like doing stand-up by Zoom. It's not the same thing. Right, right, right. And then uh, the other thing just randomly that popped out, because I had Eric Peterson on the show, was you were involved uh, with Kirsty, the sitcom Kirsty. Yeah. Yeah, I had yeah. Eric. I mean, uh, yeah. Eric Peterson, which was not, which was not a revival. That was a that new was, show. That was a new show. That yeah, that uh, probably could yeah, have lasted I, 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 longer, actually. But yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know how they say it was TV Land. Right. I think they were shifting like what they were doing and yeah, who they were. So I don't know, but I mean, I enjoyed thing. working there too. Marco Panette was the showrunner of that show, and uh, it was very fun. I mean, I've worked on a lot of shows. M- many of them are, are were fun experiences. A few of them were really shitty experiences. Many of them are, are great shows to watch. A few of them are really shitty shows to watch. Like. It's just everyone who's not a professional may not know that it's just as hard to make a shitty show as it is to make a great show. <laughs> that you really put as many man hours, often more man hours, to create a mediocre viewing experience <laughs> than than a great viewing experience. It's just there's a lot about it that is uncontrollable. Casting, chemistry, a timing, production, the showrunner's voice matching with the uh, the the voice of the 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 cast and the crew so i don't know there's a lot of different moving parts so that's why not everything is good and kind of why most things on broadcast television are, are really not good because they're the standard of what they're trying to do is a different kind of thing than what most of us want to watch right now so that's also i'm shocked that that hasn't changed already that either the broadcast networks haven't just gone away or that they've changed the style of the show they try to make and try to make something that's closer to things that are popular on streaming or pay cable or those kind of things. Right. Well, eventually they'll either have to or people just stop tuning in altogether. I think they don't have to. I mean, honestly, they keep charging more and more advertising dollars every year for less and less of an audience. No one's made them change anything. It really is... Like uh, advertisers who are paying their salary are are not disincentivizing being shitty. <laughs> so I I, just, I, think, I can't even remember the last time I watched like a show regularly on not a streaming service. Yeah, I mean, wait, well, you know, my wife loves The Bachelor, so we wind up watching a show like that or Survivor, or one of those kind of shows. Obviously, sports sports shows you you watch. But yeah, it's 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 hard. I mean, I watch The Simpsons every now and then. I'll still watch. Family Guy will be on network. I'll watch. Uh, I used to watch The Big Bang Theory. I thought that was funny. There are funny shows that fly in and fly away. Ghosts on CBS has right. some funny things. I hear that's good. Young Sheldon, people talk a lot about. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I have not watched that, but I think people hear people like it. So it's not all terrible. There's some really good shows, but most are very formulaic and difficult to get through. I watched, I watched Keenan, who I love on Saturday Night Live, and I watched his sitcom. And it's terrible. It's just unwatchable. And you go like, well, what? 
the same people who are making really funny stuff on Saturday Night Live are watching, are, are making this terrible Keenan show. And I think it just may be the, the, the time, like you're trying to tell a story in 19 minutes and really have it, the act break moments and everything seems bullshitty and, and not real and not worth following. So that's, that's my take on it. I'm trying to, I would try to make a show and I'm still in the business of pitching, but trying to make a show that feels less bullshitty. <laughs> that, that would be my motto. But I don't think I could sell that. That's not a uh, selling factor for the network. They want a show that has an act break because they want to sell commercials. So, so there you end up with Keenan. I I've never seen that yeah. one. It's funny. I see the ads for it. I don't even. I couldn't even tell you when it was on. Or I feel like it's been on for years now. But this it's going into its second season, which is <laughs> so. And, it's, and I I don't know why I'm picking on Keenan. It's probably not the worst show on TV, but it's one of the worst shows I watched. So like it's like. It's infuriating as somebody who wants to make something good. And I see all the talent, Chris Redd and Keenan, who is great, really great actors. And the storylines are just dumb. Like, they, they really are dumb. And I feel like I don't want to be perceived as dumb, so dumb that I would be, that I should be the audience for this. <laughs> you know, the audience should be smarter. You want to make the audience, assume the audience is smarter than you. Then what do you do? Then what kind of show do you make? So what are you working on now? What What's the next, Jake I'm Hogan just production? I'm just guesting on podcasts. That's all I do. <laughs> I go from podcast to podcast. The green room is shitty at these podcasts. <laughs> it's just me. Yeah, I got a, some blue diamond nuts. Almonds? Um, Those are my favorite. Yeah, almonds. Yeah. Yeah. Love them. You say like, <laughs> I thought you say like, almonds? Like, why would you have almonds? No, no, I love them. I have the whole yeah. bag. We buy them in the yeah, bag. So you can get them in a big your, bag. Yeah. It's nice. From your from your dentist father pass. Like, no, oh, don't have almonds. It'll break your tooth or something. Well, it, um, yeah, I can't eat them in my back teeth. I have to eat them with my front teeth because sure, I will exactly. I will snap right that filling right off. You'd so. think coming from a dental family, you would have some fortified back teeth. <laughs> what happened there? I used to. They just, it wore down over the years. It just right. kind of, you know. Well, Somebody didn't get enough uh, uh, cavity fighting enamel. Maybe some fluoride once in a while. Your dad could bring home from the office. Let's, just, let's, just, say, let's just say in the episode that we talked about earlier, Last Exit to Springfield, which takes place in a dentist orthodontist office, when he says, yeah. uh, how often do you brush? And the kid and it says, three times a day. And he says, you've turned my office into a house of lies. <laughs> like, right. Like that's yes. me with uh, that and flossing and stuff like Right. I also like the dental tools with the, the gouger and the, the pain maker. Yeah, he was like a had an Art, Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of weird German voice. <laughs> uh, the I'm writing, I'm helping supervise a pilot written by these really two funny uh, ladies who had a show here in Los Angeles called Dickmatized. That's becoming a that we're going out with uh, selling a, a pilot on. Uh, it's another pilot I'm working on about a Jewish family that gets a uh, a life changing event that happens. I won't say what it is because that's the money. So will, I'm gonna, will it be like uh, Miss Maisel, but with actual Jewish people playing the Jews? Yes, <laughs> actually, that's part of my pitch is like actual <laughs> Jews playing Jews. If you want, no, nobody in Jew face. It will be all Jews. I'm I'm helping uh, working on another movie and a sort of comedy horror movie that I want to direct. So I've got a lot of things in the bag, and I'm also trying to get my son to give me music so I make my podcast. So I do that. And on Fridays on Twitter, I host something called Philosophy Friday on Twitter. So if you follow me at Jake Kogan, J-A-Y-K-O-G-E-N on Twitter, on Fridays around 4.30-ish, 5 o'clock West Coast time, uh, we take on a 
philosophical or sociological conundrum, and then we talk about it. And the thing I like about doing it is it's the most calm, quiet, unfighting, unscreaming version of Twitter you've ever seen. It's just people discussing an issue, hopefully something that touches them or it's something that uh, is going on in their lives that they can talk about, and then we just talk about it as a community. So it's a way I try to form a community. They're jokes, but really it's just a kind ears and people try to sort of turning their attention towards almost in a, in a you know, definitely, I used to be a philosophy major, philosophical way, but it has a little bit of a Shabbat in it. It's sort of like a Friday, you wind down and you start thinking about the world, thinking about moving from the workday into some other mindset. And that is why I do Philosophy Friday. Sounds wonderful. Bring in some uh, goodness to Twitter. Sure. Anywhere else that people can follow you on the socials? Yeah, I'm everywhere. <laughs> I'm on Facebook and and uh, Twitter, and I'm not on TikTok, but I'm on uh, uh, Instagram, WhatsApp. What I, like, I have no idea. I'm on <laughs> what, what other things? Snapchat. I must have be on Snapchat at some point. I don't know what happens there, but I'll be on Snapchat if you need me to be. That's that's all that's going on with me. What about you, Jeff? I'm Where are you performing? I'm everywhere also. I'll be at the Magic Bag. This <laughs> Jay, thank you so much for hanging out with me. Really appreciate it's it. It's my pleasure. This has been great. Super fun. This was not a horrible experience like everybody said it was going to be. I really appreciate that. <laughs> you really stepped up. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Way to go, Jeff. <laughs> Way to go. Nice talking to you. Nice talking to you too, Jay. All right. How awesome with Jay Kogan, right? I mean, are you guys ready for Jay Kogan's podcast? about my podcast. I think that was a pretty exciting idea. Probably one of the greatest things ever to come out of any of my interviews. So keep an eye out for that and his other podcast. I'm not sure which one he's going to do first. Who knows? Who knows? A lot of great stories about The Simpsons, Frasier, Mike Myers. So much goodness in this episode. It was so fun talking to Jay. All right. Well, with the interview over, it can only mean one thing. That's right. It's time for another trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at hashtag roundup. I warned you this was coming. Download the free hashtag roundup app at the iTunes app store or Google Play Store. It's absolutely free. Follow us on Twitter at hashtag roundup. Tweet along with us. And one day, one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Classic Conversations. Fame and fortune await you. This week's hashtag is brought to you by Hash Fake Facts, a weekly game on hashtag roundup. That's right. Inspired by Jay's time at The Simpsons. It's time to rattle off some hashtag fake The Simpsons facts. Brought to you by the Fake Facts crew. Every Sunday, bring in the best and made up facts to Twitter. All you have to know about The Simpsons to play hashtag fake The Simpsons facts is nothing because it's all fake and made up. How easy is that? All right, let's read some hashtag fake The Simpsons facts. These are facts that are fake about The Simpsons. OJ is their long lost uncle. Barney is the new spokesperson for Prilosec. Homer could have prevented the Chernobyl disaster. Ah, these are some amazing hashtag fake The Simpsons facts. Homer Simpson caused the Three Mile Island accident. Dope! Troy McClure moved on to a lucrative career endorsing the pocket fisherman. In the future, Mr. Burns' estate sells his holdings to Spacely Sprockets. Ned Flanders was an undercover cop in witness protection when he met his wife. Dope! Mr. Burns hates having money. It's not excellent. 
These are some awesome hashtag fake the Simpsons facts, and we're not done. Though I apologize for the horrible Simpsons impressions, my normal guy wasn't available. Here's some more fake facts. Itchy and Scratchy are brought to you by Claritin. Comic book guy gets all the ladies. Yeah, he does. The couch is the highest paid cast member. Barney character was inspired by Rudy Giuliani. No! The entire city of Springfield has jaundice, which is why everyone is yellow. And our final, hashtag fake the Simpsons facts. The Simpsons predicted Stan Lee cameos in every Marvel film. Oh, none of those are true. All great, hashtag fake the Simpsons facts. I'll retweet it at Jeff Jawaskin Show on Twitter. Go find them, like them, retweet them, show them some love. Tweet your own hashtag fake the Simpsons facts. Tag us at Jeff Jawaskin Show. I'll show you some Twitter love. All right, well, with the interview over and the hashtag over, it can only mean one thing. Episode 140 has come to an end. Can't believe it. Oh, episode 140, why do you leave us? Well, it is, a, it is over. It's over. We got to end this one so we can get excited for the next one. That's just how the world works, folks. I want to thank my special guest, Jay Kogan, for joining me today. And of course, I want to thank all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me. And I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. Also, why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word, and we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations. Classic Conversations.